Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you again for another day of life that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we could spend in camp meeting, just learning more about your will for us in our lives. And Father, we want to do your will. And Father, we want to claim the promise just as David wanted to do was to keep the law in his heart that he may not sin against you. And Father, we want the word in our hearts. So, Father, I just pray that you would be with us. You pray that we pray that you pour out your spirit upon us, Lord, that it can convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, my name is Daniel Jean-Francois. Okay. And, and don't, you know, you can call me Pastor Daniel. That's fine. That's what many of them do because they can't pronounce my last name. So that's okay. Um, so um, I am the associate pastor here at Cedar Lake. Um, I'm next to that man, Pastor Howard. Um, you know, he tries me sometimes, but I, <laughs> but, but I, but I love the brother. And, uh, and, you know, he's actually was one of my teachers when I went to a training school called Arise in Michigan back in 2007. So he's been a blessing to me from all, for all these years. And... Um, it's a blessing to be here um, at camp meeting, so I'm here with you this morning. And we're going to cover three topics. We're going to cover the sanctuary, the 2300A prophecy, and the three angels' messages. Now, you, <laughs> when you think about the sanctuary, you can't cover the sanctuary in one hour, okay? Uh, you, you can spend years studying the sanctuary. You could spend years uh, studying the 2300-day prophecy, also the three angels' messages. So what we're going to go through is we're going to go through the lesson. I know we talked about in the beginning, Pastor Howard shared that, we're going to go through the lesson, but not to just to how to give the study, but getting the framework of why we're doing the study. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're, we, we, you know, the study here, this is number 16. So we're going to begin talking about the sanctuary. We're going to go through some of these verses, but there are certain verses that we can just stay and really just unpack what the Lord is trying to reveal. Okay, so <clears throat> again, we go through the sanctuary study and notice here. In the first page, the first question says, what was the main purpose of the Jewish sanctuary? And notice here it says in Exodus 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may what? Dwell among them, right? Now, when you think about the sanctuary and how God wants to dwell with his people, why did he want to dwell with his people? Because he loves us, okay. Anyone else? God with us, okay. What else do you, someone, I heard someone teach and train, all right. Now, the, the thing is, the Bible says that God is love, right? Now, in the context of love, you must have a relationship, right? So God wants to have a relationship with his people, now, what's interesting is that when you think about the beginning in, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, 
God had a relationship with them, didn't he? He was communicating with them. He was actually face to face with them, right? Now, what happened after sin? Separation, right? There was no longer this face to face contact with God. Okay? And so here, God wants to restore that face to face relationship. Now, I'm going to read a quote, and I, you know, I, I wish I, you know, I, I didn't have time to do PowerPoint. But so just write your reference, well, the reference here. But notice here in Book Education, page 15, paragraph 1. It says, Adam, when Adam came from the Creator's hand, he bore in his physical, mental, and spiritual nature a likeness to his Maker. God created man in his own image, and it was his purpose that the longer man lived, the more fully he should reveal his, this image, the more fully reflect the, glor the glory of the Creator, face-to-face, heart-to-heart communion with the, his Maker was his high privilege. Had he remained loyal to God, all this would have been his forever. Now, I want you to pay attention to here. He said he had face-to-face -face communion with God. That was a high privilege. Do, do you believe that one day we're going to see God face-to-face? -face? Right? So here, here he's saying that, uh, um, she says that they, it was his privilege to, to have heart-to-heart -heart communion with his maker, and it would have been his forever if he didn't sin. Okay? Now, notice something happened. There's been a, a shift here. After sin, there was no longer this face-to-face -face contact. Turn me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. And can someone read verses 18 through 23 for me, please? Any volunteer? And he said, please show me your glory. So you see what happened there? So after this sin that happened here in the Garden of Eden, now when man tries to see God's face, he says, look, Moses, you cannot see my face because if you see my face, what will happen? You will die. This is, there's a problem here. There's a problem here because we're, we're just like Moses, right? We're sinful beings, right? So what's going to happen? He says, look, if we see God's face, we will die. But there is something that needs to happen within us for us to see God's face. What do you think that is? Say that again. Sanctification. 
Okay, now notice here, there's, turn me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Can I have a volunteer to read that for us for you? Verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and honest without which no one will see the Lord. So here when you look, it says holiness, pursue peace with all people and holiness with which no one will see the Lord. So what do we need to have in order for us to see the Lord? Holiness. Holiness. And so God said, you know what? In order for this to happen, in order for the God, um, my people to have this experience of holiness, I have to create a plan to restore man to which way he was created in the beginning. Notice here in the pen of inspiration, in the book Education, paragraph 2, page 15, it says here, to restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, to promote the development of body, mind, and soul, that the divine purpose of his creation might be realized, this was to be the work of redemption. The whole plan of salvation, the whole purpose of redemption is to bring us back to the perfection which we were created for. Actually, everyone should say amen to that. Right? God wants to restore us. Right? And in order for that to happen, we need to be holy. We need to be holy. Now, what's interesting here is... When you look at the sanctuary, the sanctuary is actually the blueprint, the whole plan to restore man into the perfection which was he, which he was created. She also says in the book, Great Controversy, page 423, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the, of the disappointment of 1844 it opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed a great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. She says, when you look at the sanctuary message, the message that we have is a complete system of truth. It's a complete system of truth. And if it's a complete system of truth, how come we're not preaching it as often as we should? We're not. we're not. It's interesting because what's happening is that we are looking at the sanctuary as just as a doctrine now. So here we can look at the study guide and says, oh, let's cover, you know, you're studying with someone. Let's just cover the sanctuary and then you just move on to the next study. Well, you have to understand that this is the framework of why we teach what we teach of why we're Seventh-day Adventists, okay? Here, again, she uses the, the term a complete system of truth. Here, this is a sanctuary code, is more than a doctrine, is our framework of doing theology. Notice here, next quote, here in Great Controversy, page 488, it says, the subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God, 
all need a knowledge for themselves of the position and, uh, and work of their great high priest. Otherwise, it, it would be impossible for them to exercise their faith, which is essential at this time, or to occupy the position which God designs them to fill. Did you notice here? It says here that the subject of the sanctuary and the investigator judgment should be one, clearly understood by the people of God. How much of us know the, the, the sanctuary and the investigative judgment? How, how, how many times do you hear about the investigative judgment? Right now, I'm a student at Southwestern Adventist University, and um, I was taking a class called Prophetic Studies, and the teacher was sharing the, the context of Daniel chapter 7 and how it's all about the judgment. And as he's doing the, you know, showing the context and doing a framework of the judgment in Daniel chapter 7, he paused for a second. He says, man, what was the last time you heard uh, about a sermon on the judgment? And I was listening to it. I was like, yeah, that's true. What was the last time we heard a sermon on the judgment? And the Lord was like, yeah, when was the last time you preached a sermon on the judgment? <laughs> and, I was, and it's because we, we have gotten to a point, even within church, we dictate to the pastor what he should preach on. Because we want to feel good, okay? So we let the pastor know, well, you know, we, we, you know, we, should, we need to be easy on certain topics. Look, judgment is good news. And we're gonna we're gonna look, we're gonna look into that. It's good news. The thing is, when you think about judgment, this is where people tend to fear. And I used to work with college students at Michigan State University, so I always put it into this context. Whenever you have a final exam, right? I noticed that the students, they were studying so hard to a point where they even skipped Bible studies. They said, look, I need to study for this exam, right? Now, if you study for the exam thoroughly, do you have confidence when you go into the exam that you're going to pass the exam? Yes. But if you don't study, what happens? You fear, right? You're like, man, I'm just not going to pass this exam. The thing is, God is saying that, look, I'm giving, I have given you this plan. All you have to do is follow this plan. And you're going to be okay. Amen. That's it. It's, it. Look, it's simple. Okay? It's simple. I know there's those are coming in. Do you have the study guides? It's on number 16. On the study guides. So again, it said, she says here that it should be clearly understood by the people of God, the subject of the sanctuary and investigative judgment. Also, she says, if, if it's not studied, uh, if it's not clearly understood, it will be impossible for them to exercise faith, which is essential. Right? Which is essential. So you, we must know the, these topics. Okay. Here she also says, and this is Testimony 5, page 520. We are in the great day of atonement and the sacred work of Christ for the people of God that is going on at the present time in the heavenly sanctuary should be our constant study. 
we should teach our children what the typical day of atonement signified and that it was a special session of great humiliation and confession of sins before God. The anti-typical day of atonement is to be of the same character. It's interesting. She says that it's not only us adults. Our children need to know, need to know this. This is in Testimonies, Volume 5, page 520. She says our children need to know what Christ is doing right now in the heavenly sanctuary. Well, now what we want to feed our kids today. Uh, just, just fun and games, right? And I'm not saying it's all wrong, but we, we water down our message because we feel that, oh, they're just kids. Listen, these kids during this time knew what, was all, what, what the day of atonement was all about. And we should teach our children the same. They need to understand where we are today. And God also requires them to be holy. Here are some more quotes here. This is in Great Controversy 409. It says the scripture, which, all, which above all others has been both the foundation and the central pillar of the Advent faith, was the declaration unto 2,300 days, then, this, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Daniel 8.14. Again, this is our pillar our foundation. Notice here, it says in uh, Education, page 125, paragraph 2, it says the central theme of the Bible, the theme about which every other in the whole book clusters is the redemption plan, the restoration in the human soul of the image of God. And here, what she's saying here, the whole purpose, the everything in the Bible, everything that cluster is the plan of redemption to restore us back to this one here was the book education page 125 okay so again when you look at the when you look at the the study lesson here when it talks about that what was the purpose of the sanctuary that God wants to dwell among his people I want you to have that framework that you understand that what God is trying to do is have a relationship with his people so they could understand the whole plan of salvation. The sanctuary is there for us to understand what Christ is doing right now and what he wants us to do. Okay? So notice here in this paragraph under that uh, verse in the, your study lesson, it says, God created humans for love and companionship. He even made us in his own image so we can understand him better and and learn to love him more when our original parents sinned, the closeness that existed between God and humans was interrupted. Sin raised a barrier between humankind and our pure, our pure and holy God. So here, sin separated us from God. Okay? Notice here, number two, it says, What did God show his people through the sanctuary and his services? Notice here in Psalm 77, Verse 13, it says, thy way, O God, is through what? The sanctuary. Now, I want you to understand, I'm going to give you this bird's eye view of the sanctuary. Okay? I'll make fun of my drawing. <laughs> but here, we, we see here, this is the bird's eye view of the sanctuary, right? He says, thy way, O God, is through the sanctuary. He says, this is the blueprint. 
This is the blueprint. This is the whole plan to understanding what took place in the earthly sanctuary, what took place when Christ was here on earth, and what is taking place in heaven right now in the heavenly sanctuary in the most holy place. Okay, so this is the way of salvation. The plan of salvation is through the sanctuary. This is the blueprint. Now, if you were the devil, and you know that this is the blueprint to restore man to holiness, what would you do with this blueprint? Distort it or what? Or else what? Erase it. So it's either you distort it or you remove it. So here Satan is saying, look, since this is the blueprint, I'm going to distort the message here of what God is trying to reveal to his people. And in other ways, I'm just going to remove the whole thing. I want you to understand that even though we say, yes, we are Seventh-day Adventists, there are, I'm going to tell you, there are people even within our church have a distorted message of the sanctuary. Okay? And when you look at the sanctuary here, and I'm, I'm sure you guys did salvation already with Pastor Jim Howard. Did he talk about justification and sanctification? Okay? So here's justification happens here. Actually, let me write it down here instead. It happens here in the auto court. Okay, so here when you look at the auto court, this is the experience of justification. Okay, remember the brazen altar? This is when uh, that represents when Christ as the lamb is being sacrificed here. We'll cover that in a little bit. But this is justification. Here in the um, holy place of the heavenly sanctuary is sanctification. All right? And here in the most holy place, we call it glorification. All right? So this here is the most holy place. This is the holy place. And this is the outer court. Now, what Satan has done, again, he wants to distort the message. All right? So what he has done is put people into different camps. All right. Now, the camp, when you look here in the outer court, you have the evangelicals. All right. So you have the evangelicals who like to stay in the outer court experience. Right. It's all about Jesus <clears throat> And justification by faith alone, and that's it. They don't have the whole thing. Now, this is what Martin Luther used to preach, that it's just justification by faith and by faith alone. But when Wesley, John Wesley, who was started the Methodist Church, came in and he started to study the sanctuary, he said it's both justification and sanctification. Right? You need both. But then with Adventism, we have the whole thing. He said you need all three. That's why she calls it the complete system of truth. Okay? Remember reading that quote in Great Controversy. But what will happen with uh, the, the, the people of God is that you have people that likes to stay here and don't want to deal with sanctification. Okay? They like to stay in the outer court. Right? And guess what? You have a lot of Adventists who like to stay here. 
believe it or not. <laughs> okay? And then you have Catholicism who focus on works as, uh, uh, as receiving the uh, uh, faith. By, uh, it's a meritorious relationship with God where you, everything is by works. But you also have Adventists who like to be here. Okay? And here, what I, for just from my study alone, I believe what Satan is trying to do is remove the glorification. So you don't experience holiness. So you don't see God face to face. All right? So the, here, this is what we see in this blueprint that Satan is trying to confuse people in our, in our message just so we could continue to sin till Jesus come. This is what's happening. Okay, and this is why it's so it's so critical for us to understand why God has given us the sanctuary, because when you look at this, this blueprint, it's, a, it's symmetrical and it's a complete view of his way, of his way of salvation. This is why she says that it must be clearly understood by God's people. Now, you trust me, as we go through this, you're going to be like, this is. There's so much into this. I'm going to give you resources and books that you can read on this topic. Again, this is not something we can cover in, in 50 minutes. <laughs> okay? And so I, I just want you to understand that spend time reading, studying the, 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 the sanctuary. Okay? So here we see that the sanctuary... Um, is God's plan, his way of salvation. And notice number three here in your study lesson. It says, what was the central teaching of the sanctuary? Notice Hebrews chapter nine and verse 22. It says, without the shedding of what? But there's no remission, right? Now, what is remission? Forgiveness, right? So the sanctuary services is based on the sacrificial, uh, sacrificial of animals, okay? And there, was, there needed to be a shedding of blood, okay, so you can receive forgiveness. Now, there are three things, okay, that... Um, actually, there are three things that we're going to cover on why this... The person, the, the person who is a sinner needs to understand their process of the sanctuary. So we're going to go through some of this. Again, there's life in the blood. Notice the next um, question. It says, where did Moses get the plans for the building of the sanctuary? Exodus 5, 25 verse 9. It says, according to all that I show you, that th that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishing just so, so you shall make it. So again, when the fact that God is saying that is a pattern, that means he has a replica where? In heaven. So we see that there is a sanctuary in heaven. You also see that in the book of Revelation. It's all throughout in Revelation that you see a sanctuary language and you see Christ is moving within the candlesticks in Revelation chapter 1. So we know that there is a sanctuary in heaven. Now, we're just going to skip through, just like I said, we're just going to go through uh, um, some of these questions, but yet hone in on some topics. Notice here in this verse number five, how did the sinner receive forgiveness for sin? 
Turn with me to Luke, Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4. And we're going to look at here. Can someone read verses 30, 32 through 35? A volunteer to read verses 33. Yes, sir, go ahead. All right, thank you, brother. You know, the thing is, when you look at this passage, there's three things the sinner is going to acknowledge. And when you, there's a quote here in Great Controversy. She says in page 420, by offering the, of the blood, the sinner acknowledged, number one, the authority of the law, confessed his guilt in transgression, and expressed his desire for pardon through faith and the Redeemer to come. So the three things is that he acknowledged the authority of the law, his guilt in transgression, and faith in a Redeemer. Now, when you think about the sin offering, okay, what is the definition of sin? The transgression of the law. So let me ask you a question. Before they bring a lamb, was there an acknowledgement of the law of God? Yes. Right? So again, in this plan of salvation, in the understanding where God is trying to give us this blueprint, there has to be an acknowledgement of the law. Turn to Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. And can someone read that first, please? Go ahead, sir. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So by the law is the knowledge of what? So in order for them to bring a sin offering, they had to know that there was a law there and that they broke the commandment of God. Right? And now they bring an offering, a sin offering, and the process of bringing the, the, the sin offering, let me ask you a question. Say for it, what's your name, sir? Jim. Jim. Say for us, say for instance, all of us in the in this camp, okay? We see Jim, and he's walking with a lamb towards the altar. We all probably looking at Jim like, man, Jim, Jim done messed up again, <laughs> right? Right, Jim, Jim is just walking with this lamb, and we're like, oh man, because that lamb is going to die, okay? Now, is that a good feeling? So what, what are we doing with our gospel today? We're making it all about if, if we're supposed to feel good. Right? Look, it, it's not a joke. This was an animal that was alive. And because of Jim's sin, right? Now, I'm not meaning to pick on you, brother, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because of Jim's sin, right? That lamb is dead. Now, you might think, oh, well, you know, that's not such a big deal. Now, I've shared this story. Pastor Howard probably hear me. This is the story all the time. Here on North Academy Road, and I'm still talking about it to this day because it still bothers me. Okay? On, here on Academy Road, I'm coming from Edmore. I'm driving, and I'm here about to make a right turn to go to my house, and I'm turning on a, a Academy Road. And yet this turtle started across the street. And I'm like, by the time I saw the turtle, 
I said, man, this turtle is not going to make it. Okay. I ran over the turtle. I heard the crackling sound of the shell. Okay. And I was just like, oh, man. You, you know, you ever felt that when you ran over an animal? You know, it's just like, oh, no. I went home. My wife was there. She's washing dishes. I said, baby, you don't understand what happened. You know what I mean? I ran over a turtle. She's like, oh, no. Like, you know, just that reaction, right? Literally for the next few days, that, that turtle has been on my mind. I'm still talking about it. Huh? I've been scarred. But you see, and the Lord was revealing to me, do you feel that way about sin? You see what I'm saying? See, and the thing is, what's happening, we have cheapened our, our message with cheap grace that a person's supposed to feel good. You know, that we, they, they shouldn't feel bad when they come to Jesus. You have to understand what Jesus did. Because remember, who that lamb represent? Jesus. Right? So, so when you look at the process, notice here, in this, when we looked at Luke chapter, uh, not Luke, Leviticus chapter 4, it says in verse 32, if he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he will bring a female without blemish, then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they killed the burnt offering. Now notice, here it says that he will lay his hand, right, on the head of of the sin offering, right? So here, what he's doing, he's laying his weight on the lamb. What does that mean? What he's doing, he's transferring his sin to the lamb and laying the weight of sin upon that lamb. Does that make you think of someone? Huh? What happened to Jesus at Gethsemane? Right? As he was taking all the sins of the world, laying the weight of the sins of the world. He died because of the weight of sin. You know, what, um, Dr. Davidson, Joanne Davidson, who's a professor at Andrew University, uh, she shared with my church one time uh, a few years ago that she had the privilege of going to Israel and going to a church because she teaches Old Testament uh, studies and she was she went to a place where you have you still had uh, Samaritans that live in this certain area is about 400 Samaritans and they still practice the sacrificing of lambs. So she went there and, you know, she, you know, saw these animals, these lambs. But, you know, we talk about it and you we hear about it. We're like, oh, yeah, 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 that's true. This represents Jesus. Oh, yes. But when you're there and when she saw it, it was so surreal that she could not stand to see the sight of it. She had to actually walk away from it because the sound of the lamb. OK, the sound of the lamb was just so hard for her. This is what I'm saying. When the person actually who the sinner who actually had to bring this lamb, would take the knife himself and cut the throat of the lamb and watch the lamb die. Folks, this is how we should feel about sin. But we don't anymore. Because we, we, all we do is like, thanks Jesus, and pat him on the back and say, oh, okay, you, you covered my, my sin, so I'm good now. And then we continue in sin. 
Because you know what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 6? That we crucify him afresh every time we sin. It's like us taking the knife and cutting the throat of Christ. Sorry to be so graphic, but that's what it is. And this, folks, is the foundation of the sanctuary. And what Satan has done is distorted the foundation. And because he distorted the foundation, now we're preaching a whole different gospel in the Adventist church. You know, we have like four different gospels in the Adventist church. Why is that? Doesn't make any sense. Not everybody's confused. Right? No, if you ask people about salvation, everybody's going to give you a different story, a different type of study. Did Pastor Jim shared about how justification and sanctification, sanctification by faith is the same? Right? See, we have this mentality that when we become justified, that sanctification is later. Right? But folks, I want you to understand, sanctification starts here. Right? This is just a process. Now, just an, just an example here. I bought a treadmill about a month and a half ago. Okay? Now, why are we going to buy a treadmill for? For what reason? To use it, to exercise, right? All right. Did you say what? Close hanger. Close hanger. <laughs> <Get a> close hanger. <laughs> right? You know, that, that happens at times, right? You, t- you tend to start putting clothes on it, right? But the thing is, you know, I spent close to $1,000 on this treadmill, right? Now, why would I spend close to $1,000 on a treadmill and say I'm going to use it a year later? Huh? Ego. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? The whole purpose, right, is to use it. Now, let me ask you a question. Is exercising fun? Now, some people say yes, some, but majority would say no, <laughs> right? When you feel that soreness, just like, look, for instance, we had uh, camp pitch here and we were pounding states in the hot sun. You see, all this cool weather, I don't know what happened, all the rain, you know what I mean? It came after, <laughs> you know? I was trying to pray. I was like, Lord, let it rain before camp pitch so the ground can be soft. And when we pound those sticks, it'll be smooth. Man, I was so sore. It's just not a good feeling, right? Huh? Yeah, I know, but you know. <laughs> but the, the whole thing is, it takes work. That's why she says, look, salvation is a work of a lifetime, right? It takes work. But you see, the thing is, we don't, today in our, the, the mentality today is that we, want, we don't want to feel that. We don't want to feel the soreness. We don't want to feel when God is saying, like, you know what? You need to give this up. Oh, I didn't. We don't want to talk about it. Please talk to me about the love of Jesus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Look, wait, when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman, you think, listen, I'll tell you, so I, I, I'm telling you, I'm going to preach a sermon of the title, The Things That Jesus Said. Because if you have Jesus telling people, you know, you know, your father is of the devil. How many of us would like to hear that today? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Jesus come to you, sir. He said, you know what? Your father is of the devil. 
You know what I mean? How would you feel? Yeah, you, you, want to, you don't want to be around him after that. You're like, you know, I don't want to talk about this Jesus here because I want the love of Jesus. Here when he was the Samaritan woman, she's like, oh, man, I want this living water. Oh, OK. Well, bring your husband. Oh, uh, well, you know, I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you have how many? Five. And the one you're with is not even your. So it's like he just exposed in the mouth in two minutes. How many, how many of us would like to hear that from Jesus? No, we wouldn't want that. <laughs> That's what we are today. And what Jesus is trying to do is showing that, look, if you want this gospel, here, look, you need to change. Right? Look at it, Luke chapter 18 real quick. Luke chapter 18. I'm going to share this before we go on our break here. Luke chapter 18. Look at verse 18. It says, now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this this young rich ruler here wants what? Eternal life, right? Okay, here. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and your mother. And he says, all this, these things I've I've kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack what? One thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very what? For he was very rich. Let me ask you a question. He was what? Sorrowful. Right? He was lacking one thing. One thing here we have. Listen, I, I, I deal with this all the time because here I'm at the academy. I've had kids tell me, well, you know, the, you know what you're saying that is not we're not good enough. We feel that we're not good enough. Well, it's not you're never going to be good. There's no one good but God. Right. Let's lay that out. <laughs> OK, there's no one good but God himself. Our righteousness is as filthy. What? Rags. <laughs> right? So here the thing is that the, the kids would say, well, I, I, I need to feel a certain way to accept Jesus. But here the man walked away sorrowful for one thing. One thing that he was holding on to. This is what we're, we're, where we're at today. We want to hear a certain type of message so we could say, man, that was a good thing. I feel good. I feel great. But when God is trying to say, look, I'm trying to bring you here into the most holy place. This is where I want you. It's going to take work. Okay, it's going to take work. It's going to take a relationship. Someone actually shared this with me that here the out of court experience is like marriage. Out of court experience is where you say I do. And here is where you have the relationship. See, the I do is the easy part. Okay, when I got married, when my wife and I got married, it was great. Okay? I do. Then when she moved in, there was problems. <laughs> okay? Because she was bringing all her clothes, and then she, you know, like she took most of my, clo- my closet space. I said, wait a minute, hold on. Wait, wait, wait a minute, what was that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that what we're supposed to go through here? And here, 
I'm thinking, okay, I'm still going to, you know, I'm in my 30s. I'm still going to do my own thing, what I usually do when I go, come home. I come home, and she says, so, how was work today? Like, you really want to talk right now? I don't feel like talking. You know how us men, we don't want to talk, you know what I mean? And, and she was like, yeah, I, so how was work? I was like, okay, it was good. Okay, I left it there. And she was like, like, what do you mean by good? Like, you know, give me your highs and lows. Like, what do we, you know? I'm like, I don't want to talk about those things. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah, and so that's what, it was like that. And finally she was like, listen, we need to like talk. And I was like, okay. In my mind, I started thinking like, if, it, it, it made sense. If I don't communicate and have a relationship, I'm going to lose this. Right? So I'm like, okay, I'm going to start talking. Okay? So I come home. How's your day? Boom, I explain, you know, it was good. This happened, that happened, so much stuff, and what have you. I'm like, okay, good, I'm good, I'm done. And she said, you're not going to ask me about my day? I'm like, wait a, I'm like, wait a minute now. Wait, how, wait, it's supposed to go the other way too? And, they, and you know, with the ladies, you know, they're going to give every single detail. You know what I mean? And she started, boom, boom, going to every detail. I'm like, oh, man. This is, where, this is what this is all about. Jesus want to have that type of relationship. You see what I'm saying? In order for us to get here, this is what needs to, we need to experience. And the foundation is here by understanding what Christ done. He was that lamb that took your place because you sinned. Okay? So I want you to understand this. this. And this is what the devil has been trying to do is to distort our message. And this is why we have so much confusion even within our church. All right? Take a break. 10 minute break. And then we'll be back and we're going to continue from there. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you again for being with us. We thank you, Lord, for sending your only son to die on Calvary for our sins, Father. And Father, as we even talked about uh, the lamb being sacrificed and helping us to reflect on what Christ did on the cross, Father, we need to have a sorrow for sin. And Father, I pray that you will help us, Lord, to daily live a life as an example of Jesus Christ here on earth. Father, help us to reflect your character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, when you look at, again, we talked about the sanctuary. There was different um, offerings and services that took place in the sanctuary. You had the burnt offering, uh, which um, when you look, if you have a book, the book by Leslie Harding called, um, I think it's in his, no, not in his sanctuary, Jesus in the Sanctuary. Okay, by Leslie Harding. You look at the burnt offering, uh, the, the synopsis of that offering is all that I am is Christ. Now, each is interesting that each offering, when you look at the sin offering, they also had a burnt offering with that. And the burnt offering represented what Christ did for us. And it also represents what you would do for him. Right. And so when you look at matter of fact, let's look real quick in Leviticus chapter one. 
Now, I want you to understand, the book of Leviticus is about holiness, okay? Now, people have a hard time reading the book of Leviticus because they're always talking about just all these different offerings and sacrifices. But again, it was a, it's a book about holiness to prepare the Israelites to get to the promised land. Does that make sense? All right? Now, what is our promised land? Heaven, right? Or the, the new earth, right? So again, we need to understand the process, right, of understanding these, the, what Christ has done for us so we also can be holy, okay? So here in Leviticus chapter 1, it's interesting here. Let's start, let's start from verse 1 and 2. It says, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you bring an offering to the Lord, you shall bring an offering of livestock of the herd and the flock, if his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meetings before the Lord. He, he shall Then he shall put his hands on the head of the burnt offering and will be accepted on his behalf to make an atonement for him. So here, this is an offering that took place in the morning and evening. Okay. Um, by the priest, and also when a person had a sin offering, they also bring a burnt offering. And the, when you look further down, when you read the chapter, it says that when they brought the animal, they will burn all of that animal, all the parts. What is it trying to say? It says, all that I am is Christ. That means that Christ gave all, right, for his service, right? Did Christ gave up every, give up everything for us? Yes, he did. And so he's saying that, look, it's the same way with us. When we bring our offering, we need to give our all. Right? We need to give all of us, not partial. And this is, and I'm, I'm sure Pastor Jim Howard covered this in Salvation, that Christ wants the whole heart, not a partial heart. Ellen White says that except to Christ, that he, he wants the whole thing. And what you see at times when people accept Jesus, they say, oh, yeah, I accept Jesus, but they don't want to give up a certain thing, so they give him partial. And then next thing you know, they're out of the church. You ever wondered why? Because they never gave it their all. And here, this is why they were giving the burnt offering, because we're giving our all to him. Okay? And so this is the, the we had the meal and grain offering, which is saying that all that I have is Christ. That means everything that you have, your talents, is for him. Right? Well, if you have a talent, it's all for the glory of God. He says, use it for my glory. He says, I want all of it. Let me use you. All right? Uh, we had the peace offering. All my peace and joy is Christ. The sin offering is all of my sin is Christ. Okay, now this is what's interesting. When you look at Great Controversy, page 420, okay, um, it says in Great Controversy, page 420, important truths concerning the atonement are taught by the typical service. A substitute was accepted in the sinner's stead, but the sin was not canceled by the blood of the victim. A means... A means was thus provided by which it was transferred into the sanctuary. 
Now, I want you to understand something here. There was something called the daily services, which we talked about the offerings, that took place here in the outer court and in the holy place. These were the daily services that took place every day, right? But there was a period here where the priest would go, the high priest would go into the most holy place how many times? Once a year. Because remember, as the, as the person were bringing the lamb to sacrifice, the blood, they would take the blood of that lamb and take the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. Then also at times they would go into the holy place and sprinkle the blood on the veil. Now you're talking about millions of people, right? Where they're being sacrificed. And so the thing is not only that you're, 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 you're forgiven, but again, your, your sin, your, your record, okay, <laughs> your, the record is also being put into the sanctuary. The sin had to transfer in, then eventually transfer out, okay, after the Day of Atonement. So now, the whole purpose of uh, why we, were, we, we need to be cleansed is God wants to cleanse his people, and he also wants to cleanse the sanctuary. Now, I want you to think about this. When I think about cleansing the sanctuary, if, for instance, um, I invited you into my home, right? And then you see that I haven't cleaned the bathroom. Say, for instance, I told you that I haven't cleaned the bathroom for a year, right? How would you respond to that? You have another bathroom. <laughs> you have another place. Can I go? <laughs> right? Why? Why wouldn't you go in? Huh? For one year. It would be nasty, right? So, so what? What? The thing is, I want you to understand. What do you think God is trying to reveal to His people about sin? That is filthy. It's nasty, right? And so here, all this is coming in, and just as a person is, is seeing, just like a person coming into my home, is seeing the bathroom, is filthy. But he's saying, look, I'm able, I'm able to cleanse that. Just as sin is filthy, and you are a sinner, he says, I'm, I'm able to cleanse you. Isn't that powerful? I'm like, praise the Lord for that. He says, look, he's able to clean me. Whatever filthiness that's in my life, he says, look, I'm going to clean you, but let me clean you. Now, we can't, for instance, we can't just say, just like for instance, if, we, you know, if the Lord says, you know what, Daniel, I want to clean your bathroom for you. No, Lord, that's okay. Just leave it like that. Here he's offering. He says, look, let me clean it for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And sometimes you have people who reject it and say no. This is why we, it's our duty to let people know the whole plan and what God is trying to do. He's trying to cleanse us. Okay? So the, the, the thing here is that when you, when you look at the fact that, uh, that the, the blood was um, brought into the sanctuary, again, it says that the sin was not canceled. Okay? Now, I want you to listen to this here. The sins of Israel in the daily service, daily service, the record of those forgiveness of those sins were being transferred and recorded by the blood on the altar of the sanctuary. The person will walk away justified, but the record of that forgiveness remain on the horn of the altar in the sanctuary. 
In a sense, the sanctuary was becoming polluted with the record of the sins of Israel. So the thing is, even though you walked away justified, right? It's still recorded. Okay? And so we got to have that in mind. So notice here, there's a, there's a, because some people might think, well, why does people need cleansing? You know, I thought Christ's, you know, blood covers us. Yes, Christ's blood covers us, but in the books of heaven, like in the heavenly sanctuary, in some systematic way, when you ask for forgiveness of sin, it is covered, but the record of that forgiveness still remains in the books of heaven. Now, I mean, this is my notes. <laughs> this, is, this is my, my, my notes. But I'm going to read a quote from the great controversy. There's a chapter called Life's, uh, Life's Record. All right. And this is this is long. Well, I just want you to listen. This is page um, 481. The book of life contains the names of all who have entered the service of God. Jesus bade his disciples rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Paul speaks of his faithful fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Philippians 4, 3. Daniel, looking down to the time of trouble such as never was, declares that God's people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. And the revelator says that those only shall enter the city of God whose name are written in the land's book of life, Daniel 12.1. A book of remembrance is written before God, in which are recorded the good deeds of them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name, Malachi 3.16. Their words of faith, their acts of love, are registered in heaven. Nehemiah refers to this when he says, Remember me, O my God, and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for those for the house of my God, Nehemiah 13, 14. In the book of God's remembrance, every deed of righteousness is immortalized. There, there every temptation resisted, every evil overcome, every word of tender pity expressed is faithful, chronicled, and every act of sacrifice, every suffering, every sorrow endured for Christ's sake is recorded. The psalmist, uh, says the psalmist, thou tellest my wonderings and put my tears into thy bottle, are they not thy book? Psalm 56, verse 8. There is a record also of the sins of man, for all shall bring every work into judgment, every secret thing, whether it be good, whether it be evil. All right, and she further on says, The secret purpose of Moses appears in the unerring register, for God will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsel of hearts. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Behold, it is written before me are your iniquities and your iniquities of your fathers together, said the Lord, Isaiah 65, verse 6. Every man's work passes in review before God and is registered for the faithfulness or unfaithfulness. So you see here, again, the same experience of a person that went through the sanctuary service is the same experience of us today. So when we ask for forgiveness, right, though we are pardoned, we, things are still regarded because Why? God still gives us the freedom of choice. Right? We still, a person can change their mind. 
Okay? And so the whole thing is that this is why it's so important for us to understand what took place. Though a person is walked away, walked away justified, but yet as they were walking away, what do you think they're thinking about as they're going back to that tent? Hmm? I don't want to sin no more. Yeah, I don't want to do that anymore. What did you say, sir? You start fresh, right? And then he says, you know what? I don't want to do this, right? And so that's the experience that we need to have when we ask for pardon. It's like, well, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me the strength, okay? And so this is the experience of an individual here as they go through this process. Now, I'm going to read a quote from the book Sanctuary Service, which I recommend you getting. Uh, it's by Emma Andreessen. Is called the Sanctuary Services. And I'm going to quote from him, page 177 and 178. It says here, God keeps an account with each man. Whenever a prayer for forgiveness ascends to God from a true heart, God forgives. But after men have been forgiven, they at times change their minds. They repent of their repentance. They show their, by their lives that their repentance is not permanent. And so God, instead of forgiving absolutely and finally, and finally marks forgiveness against man's name and waits for the final blotting out of sins, they have had time to think the matter through. At, if at the end of their lives they are still of the same mind, abhorring their sins in sincere repentance, God counts them faithful. And in the day of judgment, their record is finally cleared. So here, again, it's the same thing. They go through the experience, and when in the day of atonement, it's finally wiped out. In fact, the sin is removed, okay, and placed on the goats, all right? So now, again, this is why I said that we're, not, we're, we're just giving you a framework here and just a mindset as, as you're sharing these studies. And I was just sharing with the gentleman, I'm not expecting you to do all this with your Bible study. Okay? This is just for you. Okay? And definitely, you know, they, it would be nice to, for them to see uh, the whole picture of framework of the um, bird's eye view of the sanctuary, just so they can understand uh, the process. But there's more to it than just going through the lesson study. Okay? Now, notice here in uh, number six, it says... How much time we have here? Oh, man. Pastor Howard, how, what time do you usually finish? Noon? One o'clock? <laughs> With Pastor Howard, I believe that. <laughs> so here, number six says, Oh, what was the Hebrew sanctuary modeled? In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, it says, Which have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven and minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Okay? And notice here in number seven, what did Jesus do in the courtyard of the earth? It says in John chapter one and verse 29, behold the one, Lamb of God which take away the sin of the world. Now I want you to th think about this now. When you look at the book of John, the whole book of John is sanctuary language. All sanctuary language, okay? And so, and that's why even in the book of Revelation, you See all the sanctuary language there. When you look at the next page, it says, how does the furniture of the sanctuary represent Jesus? Because all the furniture represents Christ. 
right? So you have the altar of burnt offering where you have Jesus who sacrificed his, his life here. Now, I want you to understand when you're studying with some, someone, make it practical for them, just like I brought up the whole turtle thing. Because I guarantee, just like when I was mentioning the turtle and what happened to the turtle, all you, most of you cringed, right? They need to understand what it means to accept Christ, what it means for Christ, for Christ to die for them. They need to understand that, right? And so here, this is where you go to the altar of burnt offering. And the laver, it says here, it represents that Christ as being the living water and also uses the text in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, which is the washing, the regeneration, which represents by baptism. That's why when a person understands what Christ did for them, right, and they accepted Christ, they are justified, their next step is the baptism experience. Now, I'm going to tell you this. We have made baptism into like a program today. Okay? And I'm, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm noticing that a lot lately that it's become a show. You know, people want to do it just because of their friends. I can't tell you how many times, and it, and it happened to me. I got baptized around 11 years old because my friends were doing it. I can't tell you how many kids that I'm studying with now said they want to get rebaptized because... They got pressured by their parents or, you know what I mean, they, they're doing it because their friends are doing it. Folks, huh? Or even the pastor. That is true. You know what I mean? Hey, folks, l- listen, we're, we're, we're not Catholics. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like let, let the, they need to understand the plan of salvation. They need to understand what God requires from them. Okay, so we it's not about just slip and dip and just to, you know, just to get numbers. You know what I mean? Look, it's dangerous. We're playing with people's lives here. Okay, and so this is why we they have to understand that God wants the whole heart. He wants all of you. And folks, if they don't accept it, they don't accept it. Okay, we're not trying to force people. All right. And so what, what I'm noticing a lot now, because I've had parents come to me and say, look, well, a pastor told me that my child needed to baptize because if any kids say that they need to baptize, just baptize them. No. OK, you need to go to a, a process of studying with them, helping them to learn. You know, our doc- I'm going to tell you this and I'm share. I'm going to share this. Recently, I don't know if I should share this or not. Well, well, okay, okay, okay. So, 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 so this is what happened. We have people even in our, our leadership, now I'm talking about Michigan now, okay, leadership elsewhere, who are saying that we need to go back into uh, following what the Bible, how the Bible baptized people and not the tradition. You hear what they're saying? They're saying, that the way we go through the process of going through vows and studying, that's traditional. Biblically, you didn't have to do that. So what, so what are they saying now? You don't have to understand anything. You just need to accept Jesus and you're done. Now, I want you to understand. When you look in the book of Acts, because people want to quote the book of Acts, 
That was a whole different time where you have people who have already understanding of certain doctrine. The thing that was missing was Christ. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And that's why even when you look in church, matter of fact, Ellen White quotes this in the, uh, talking about the church of Corinth. When you look in the Acts of the Apostles, she says that Paul would go through baptismal vows within the church of Corinth because you have people who are coming from all over with different faith, different worshiping different gods, coming into a church with different ideas. So he says, look, you need to go through the process with them. So that's the whole thing. So now we're trying to move away from that to go back and say, oh, just baptize someone. But then we have 70% of young people who leave our church. I wonder why. Because they never got well grounded. Well, yeah, that's not right. You know what I mean? I just got the stats because you know what I mean? But that's where we are. We have a lot of people leaving because they were never grounded. I left the church because I was never grounded. Okay? You know what I'm saying, Fitz? <laughs> okay. Because I knew Fitz from back in New York. So it's, it's the same thing. <laughs> okay? So. Well, after they're baptized, then it doesn't happen. Right. But that's what I'm saying. Right. And, and the, the other thing, too, is that even after their baptism, we don't lead them here to have an experience in the holy place. We just let them go. And then they start to leave the church because they never understood this, that a discipleship, understanding that it's a daily devotional life, a daily prayer life, which is what we're going to do here in the process. Yes, sir. Many consider baptism the graduation. Right. That's exactly right. Well, yeah, that, and this is why I praise the Lord for the disciple. I'm sure Pastor Howard and Pastor Jim talked about the discipleship handbook. We finally, we had something to help them through the process. Because look, everything that I'm, I'm going to tell you this here too. Everything that you learn here, you're going to forget. Okay. No, the only way you remember it is if you go back home and study. I'm telling you, I've been through these type of training programs before, and I'm just like, I forget everything. But, but the thing is, what they have given me is the tools, you know what I mean, that I could wake up in the early in the morning, spend time with him, and I'm like, ah, that's what he was talking about. Ah, oh, that's, what, that's what God wants to do with you. But what's happening is that we, you know, people are learning this. You go through Bible study lessons and all that, and then they get baptized, and then we leave them, but they've forgotten all this. So that's when you, when you look at the discipleship handbook, it actually goes back to the same thing again, but expound even more. Okay? So notice here it says the baptism. Then you have the candlesticks, which is um, Jesus being the light of the world. But also in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, he says that you are also light of the world. And don't hide your light under a what? So, so how a person can share their light? Is evangelism is involved. So when you have an experience with God here, right, and you're daily spending time in God's word, because remember, the bread represents the word of God. Remember, the priests would eat of the bread how many times? Daily, morning and evening. They would eat of the bread. So that means God is saying to you that you should spend time in God's word in the morning. You should spend, God in God, spend time in God's word in the evening. Right. And when you do that, you have an experience where you are going to be a light to the world. It can't be hidden under a bushel. 
All right. Then we have the altar of incense. And it says here in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, that the righteousness of Jesus mixed with the prayers of the faithful is talking about the prayer of the saints. Now, I want you to notice here how this definitely represents the prayer life. Let's look at the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1. And this is talking about Zacharias here. Yes. Here we go. Let me, I'm going to start from verse um, 8. It says, So it was that while he was serving as priest before, talking about Zacharias, before God in order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burnt incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were what? Praying outside at the hour of what? Incense. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on what? The right side of the altar of incense. So you notice here that the people were praying while Zacharias was here at the altar of incense. Right? Notice here, it says here, and it says, and when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your what? Prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So again, while Zacharias is here at the altar of incense, the angel says, look, we have heard your what? Prayer. So this is why you have the altar of incense that represents your prayer life. And, you know, scholars have said that the priest could not wait to be at the altar of incense. Why? Why they couldn't wait to be at the altar of incense? Okay, what's across here from the altar of incense? The most holy praise. Who was there? God, the Shekinah glory. They could not wait to be at the altar of incense because they know right behind the veil is the presence of God. That means when you have a prayer life, this is when you are the closest to God. See what I'm saying? And so this is why you have to understand that having this relationship is key. Right. It's key to having an experience where you'll be able to see God face to face. Okay. Now, here again, we have number six here. uh, Well, um, number eight, it says the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat represents the mercy of God offered to those who break uh, his law. Okay. Now, for the sake of time, for the sake of time. Um, yes, we, you know, everything else is basically self-explanatory. We're going to go into the next lesson. But again, I, I, I wanted to share with you how important the sanctuary is and how, let me just put it this way. I'm trying to break this thing down as simple as possible here. And why, we, when you look at the Adventist Church, we have different views on this, this issue. We had, there was a period in time in the 1950s where um, we were being attacked, where people were calling us cults. Remember that? Okay. There was a man by the name of Walter Mar- Martin and Barnhouse who were accusing the Adventist Church of being cults, and they w- wrote a book called Kingdom of Cults. You guys ever heard of that book? It's like this thick. And they wanted to put us in there. Okay. And so they were accusing us of, you know, wanting to, we're not 
are part of the Christian body. They, they, they felt that we put too much emphasis on the law, that we're under the new covenant. We don't need to keep the law. We don't need to keep the Sabbath. The view of the um, sinful nature of Christ is wrong. Um, our view as far as us being the remnant is wrong. All this attack was taking place upon our church. So we had some gentlemen in our church, some theologians who, who came together, who decided to write a book called Questions on Doctrine. And in this book, Questions on Doctrine, they changed our view so we won't be labeled a cult. Okay? So what happened was, after that, Walter Martin accepted the fact that the, the Adventist church is now an evangelical church. And this is all in our history. You can find that by George Knight in Search of Identity. You can, there's a book by Jeffrey Paxton um, called The Shaking of Adventism. He's an Anglican who wrote the history of what took place. And he said that all this happened during that time, and now it changed our view, and then now everyone was speaking a different language. Okay? And there was confusion on the issue of salvation. Now, there was, a, there was a man who, a theologian, who was the most influential theologian in our church who have taken questions on doctrine and went forward with it, even teaching in our university. Okay? So that means he influenced many pastors. Okay? And one of, of his students, which he disagreed with, was Desmond Ford. Because Desmond Ford took it and went further with it. And to a point where he says there's no sanctuary in heaven. See what I'm saying? And listen what L.Y. says. Book Evangelism, page 224. In the future, deception of every kind is to arise. And we want solid ground for, for our feet. We want solid pillars for the building. Not one pin is to be removed from that which the Lord has established. The enemy will bring false theories, such as the doctrine that there is no sanctuary. This is one of the points on which there will be a departing from the faith. When Desmond Ford came out in the 1980s, which his mentor was Edward Heppenstall, I'm going to say it, <laughs> okay? He took it further. Now, Edward Hepperstone didn't agree with him, but again, when you have that framework, this is what happens. He took it further, and you had plenty of Adventists who left the church after uh, Desmond Ford. So this is why I'm saying to you that we need to study the sanctuary and study it thoroughly. This is why Ellen White said, when you, when you study, when it's clearly understood, the sanctuary and the investigative judgment how it is essential to learn that, because if you don't, there's going to be problems. Okay? So this is why I wanted to cover on the sanctuary section. Uh, I wish I could go into more de details on, on the Desmond Ford thing, but um, I'm sorry. <laughs> so let's do this here. Um, take a 10-minute break, and then so we can start the next session. We're going to go into the 2300 days before lunch. All right? 10-minute break, folks.
Father in heaven, Lord, we're thankful that we can be here uh, again to just learn more about your word and more about your plan for us. And Father, we just ask that we you be with us now as we look into what Christ is doing right now. So Father, I pray that you will be with us and guide us. We ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now the thing is, I, I'm just sharing from my experience with studying with people that when I ask them about what Jesus is doing right now, majority of the time they don't have a clue what, what he's doing. Um, some would give it an answer, and, and I, this is what was revealed to me. Some would say, well, he's building mansions in heaven. Yes, he is. But that's not going to take a long time. Okay? Uh, some, some, some people have said, you know what? I never thought about it before. You know? And uh, what's interesting is if you turn the book of Hebrews chapter 8, I always lead them to this chapter and verse, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And if someone could read that for us, when you, go ahead, brother. When everyone gets there, 1 and 2. Now this is the main point thing we are saying. We have such a high priest, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Okay, so, so we see here that we have a uh, minister of the true tabernacle, right? We have a high priest in heaven, which is Jesus Christ, okay? And he's doing a certain work. Now, I've studied with, you know, some Christians, and they say that we don't need to follow and understand the Old Testament. But if you see that Jesus is a high priest, you really need to understand what a high priest would do in, you know, their services in the Old Testament. That's the only way you can find out. That's why it's so important to understand the sanctuary. So here he says that we have a high priest. And does your say that this is the main point or this is the sum? This is the main point. This is the main point. He said this is the main point. King James Version says this is the sum. That means here when you look at the Greek word, it says this is the head. The main point is that Christ is our high priest. Even though we, because he's, remember Paul is preaching and sharing this letter to Jewish Christians who have an understanding of the sanctuary and its services. Does that make sense? So here he says, look, but this is the main point. Christ is doing a work right now, right? Now, the whole, and he's going to talk about this too. When you talk about the furnitures and all the things that, what it means. He says, look, those things are important, but that's not the main thing, right? The main thing is understanding what Christ is doing. So in order for us to know what Christ is doing, we need to understand and look in the sanctuary and watch him go through the sanctuary. Just as in the, um, in the earthly sanctuary, the people were looking to see what the priest was doing in the heavenly sanctuary. Do you think in the Day of Atonement, people were just kicking back and just talking and saying, man, how things are going today while the, priest, the high priest was in the most holy place? No, what were they doing? They were convicting their soul. Luke, Leviticus chapter 16, they said they were afflicting their souls. That means they were confessing their sins, making sure that they were right with God. Right? But now, if we have a high priest in heaven, guess what, 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 what we're supposed to be doing? Afflicting our soul, confessing our sin, making sure that we are right with God. But because the devil knows that, he says, well, I want to distort that too. 
So people are not paying attention to what Christ is doing in the heavenly sanctuary. So he came up with a nice plan, a nice plan to distort, to make sure that people are not looking at Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Okay. Now, if you have this lesson study here, this is lesson number 17. Okay. Lesson number 17. Take that out. Those who don't have lesson. So you don't have. Okay. Lesson 17. What's the subject? Oh, the Messiah and the judgment. So here, again, as I mentioned, the devil has come with a plan to make sure that people are not paying attention to what Christ is doing. Okay? So, again, we're going to go through some of, some of the verses, but we're going to emphasize just on one verse and expound on it. So, notice here, number one, how many people will face the judgment? He says, we must what? All appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And it's basically the same thing that was taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. And notice here, number, um, number two, will the judgment take place prior to the second coming of Christ? He says, behold, I am coming quickly in my what? Reward is with me to everyone according to his works. Now, let's look at number three. This is where we're going to focus here. How did the prophet Daniel describe the judgment? Let's turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And can someone read verses 9 and 10 for me, please? Any volunteer? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. I So it says the what was seated? Court. Court. King James Version says the judgment. Okay, the judgment was set and the books were open, right? Now, this is a vision that God, Daniel sees here. He sees that there's a judgment going on, right? But there's something that happened prior to that scene, okay? What happened prior to those two verses in 9 and 10? What was he describing in the previous verse? The beast, right? The little horn. Who's the little horn? The, pap the papacy, right? So we have the Antichrist power. Right. It talks about this little horn with the eyes of eyes of man and mouth speaking great things. Right. You guys covered the Antichrist. Right. OK. So how long was the period of the Antichrist reign? I'm giving you an exam now. OK. One thousand two hundred and sixty years. Right. Remember, it was days. Did you guys do the day year principle? OK. So here this is the papacy. OK. And. What were the years that the papacy were in reign? 538 to 1798. Okay? Now, this was called the period of dark ages, and why was it dark? Okay, so the, remember the Bible says the word of God gives light. 
Okay, so here they, they kept the word of God from the people. Well, I want you to notice something here. There's going to be three times I'm going to show this to you where what Daniel sees, he sees the papacy, he sees the papal power, and then he sees a judgment coming after. Okay, so we just see we just seen here in verse eight, it talks about the little horn power, which is the Antichrist power. But then the next thing he was he sees is a judgment. Okay, you with me so far? So we have it here that we had we seen the Antichrist power, then we seen a judgment. Okay, you with me so far? Now, let's look at the next text. This is in Daniel chapter 7 again. Okay, somewhere read verses 19 through 21. Well, dear. Yes, ma'am, go ahead. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful. His teeth were of iron, and his nails of brass was devoured broken pieces and stamped residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stopped than his fellows, I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Okay, who's this little horn here? The papacy. Right. So you notice here, here he's he's talking about the he's talking about the papacy in Daniel chapter seven, verse eight. Then he starts talking about a judgment starting from verse nine and ten and through 13 and 14. And then now he's talking about the papacy again. Right. Now, what do you think is going to be the next scene? Notice verse 22. Can you read verse 22? Until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the most high. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. You notice that again. Here you notice that he's talking about the Antichrist. And now he's talking about a judgment that's going to happen right after 1798. Makes sense. Let's read another, the last one here. Can someone read verse 25 for me, please? Yes, go ahead, sir. Oh, sorry. I'll get you next time. Who's this talking about? The papacy, right? So we see that again. It's talking about the papacy. Did, did you guys cover that verse here? Okay. So you guys know what the time, times, and half a time, which represents the 1260, right? So he made wars against the saints, right? He spoke pompous words, right? Remember, he spoke blasphemy when a man claims to be God, but he's not God. That's blasphemy. When a man claims to forgive sins, he can't forgive sins. So that's blasphemy, right? So again, we see that this is talking about the papacy. Notice the next verse. Read, someone read verse 26. Ma'am, if you could read verse 26 for me. So again, after the papacy, he sees another judgment. So, uh, so what we're seeing here, what Daniel is revealing, that you're going to see there's a period of, of the papacy, the Antichrist power, which is from 538 to 1798, and after that period, there's going to be a judgment. Does that make sense? 
Okay, so this is the context of what we're doing here, right? That we know that there's going to be a judgment after 1798. All right. Now, this is what's interesting. Because this is a problem. Remember, I told you that the whole purpose of Satan, why he's using this system is to make sure that people don't know what Christ is doing in the heavenly sanctuary. Remember, I said that. Right. So he had to come up with a plan within this system to make sure that people get confused, get, get confused about scripture. Remember, number one, they couldn't have scripture. So they couldn't understand what Christ is doing. Right? Or even when they had an explanation of a passage, they would distort that passage. Right? Now, I want you to notice something. We're going to skip back to some verses here. When you look at verse 19 again, it says, Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nail of brass, which devoured breaking pieces and stamped the residue with his feet. So the, 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 the Roman Empire was of what metal? Iron, right? How does he have iron and then he has brass nails? They conquered the Greeks, right? But how did the, how did the Greek get on a nail? Greek philosophy. Right. So so what happens within the, with the papacy, they adopted Greek philosophy and applied it to scripture. OK. Right. All this with, with, with the holy, the, the mixture of the holy and profane just coming together. OK. Now I'm going to read a passage here from Great Controversy where she talks about this. And this is uh, Great Controversy, page 58, okay? The advancing centuries witness a constant increase of error in the doctrines put forth from Rome. Even before the establishment of the papacy, the teachings of heathen philosophers had received attention and exerted an influence in the church. Okay? Many who professed conversion still clung to the tenets of their pagan philosophy and not only continued in study, its studies themselves, but urged it upon others as a mean of extending their influence upon, among the heathen. Serious errors were thus introduced into Christian faith. Prominent among these were the belief that man's natural immortality and his consciousness, consciousness in death. So all the studies that we do, the reason why we do state of the dead is because of Greek philosophy that has come into the church. And what's happening is that because of the, now, now I want you to think about this. When you think about this system, right, there were people that came out of this system. Who were they? Martin Luther. Who else? Wesley. So all these churches came out. Okay. So you have Protestants, and why they were called Protestants? They were protesting against the church, but did they remove everything from the church? No. They still had some Greek philosophy. Okay? So notice here, she, saw, she says this here, the, this doctrine laid the foundation upon which Rome established the invocation of saints and the adoration of the Virgin Mary, 
from this sprang also the heresy of internal torment. Right? All this came from Greek philosophy. For the final impenitent, which was early incorporated into the papal faith. Then the way was prepared for the introduction of still another invention of paganism, which Rome named purgatory, and employed the terrifying and credulous and superstitious multitudes. Still another fabrication was needed, enable Rome to profit by the fears and vices of their of her inherents, adherents. This was supplied by the doctrine of indulgences. From, from remissions of sins, past, present, and future, she further on says, the people were also taught by that, by the payment of money to the church that they may free themselves from sin and also release the souls of their deceased friends who were confined in the tormenting flames. The scriptural ordinance of the Lord's Supper has been supplanted by the idolatrous sacrifice of mass. Papal priests pretended by their sinless murmuring to convert the simple bread and wine into the actual body of, uh, and blood of Christ. With blasphemous presumption, they openly claim the power of creating God, the creator of all things. So you see all this were taking place here. And here, this is what Satan was using to make sure the people wasn't focused on Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. We're going to see that further on. Okay. So again, I want you to notice here in the page uh, in your lesson study. Notice in verse four, number four, it says, what is the purpose of the judgment? It says the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the king, the kingdom forever and even forever and ever. Okay. Look at number five. On what basis will people be judged? Ecclesiastes verse number chapter 12, verse 14, it says God will bring what? Every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Okay? Now, I want you to understand. When you think about uh, the judgment, again, everything is going to bring uh, be brought into view. And when you look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, if you turn me there real quick, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27. All right. And here in verse 27, it says here, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his what? The works. So our works is going to be appear before judgment. And also, I want you to write this down so just so we can go through them. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37. Our words is going to be brought into judgment. Our words. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37. Our words is going to be brought before judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Our actions. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Our actions will be brought before judgment. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 is our motive. Okay? 1 Corinthians 4, 5, our motive. Matthew 16, 27. And that's our works, okay? Oh, yeah, no, that's fine. So now what we're going to do, okay, is really go into the 2300 days. Because remember, it says here, number six here, 
When does the judgment begin? This is for 2,300 days the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. But in order for us to understand this, we need to set the tone with the 70-week prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. So turn me to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. All right, can someone read verse 24 for me? Yes, sir, go ahead. All right, so he says here, 70 weeks is determined upon thy people, right? And so here we look at this, this prophecy, and, and when you look at prior to this, uh, um, this verse, remember it says that Gabriel came back to Daniel, right? Remember that? It says that I came to give you skill and understanding, right, of the vision. There was a vision that um, Gabriel did not explain to Daniel, and we're going to cover that in a little bit. And here he begins the prophecy by saying, look, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, right? Now, what is 70 weeks? How much is 70 weeks? 490 days, right? Now, you have 490 days, but obviously you guys did the day your principle. We know that this is years. Now, some of you might say, well, is this something that Adventists teach? Look, I want you to think about this. When you think about the things that took place, the events that took place in these 490 years, if you take the 490 days literal, literal, those events cannot fit in a year and a half. Okay? And that's why even in the NCV version, the New Century Version Bible, have you ever heard of New Century Version Bible? They actually put the years there, 490 years. Okay? This is not something that is something that we came up with, right? Scholars have know this because actually they are using it today, okay? And we're going to talk a little bit about that with the issue of the rapture, all right? Because they're using this same prophecy, right? So it says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. You have 490 years, and who is he talking to? Who does the Lord talk to? Who? Who is the Lord talking to? Israel, Right? They have 490 years to get their act together, right? Remember when Jesus, uh, when Peter came to Jesus, he says, how many, how many times I should forgive a man? Seventy times seven. What is Jesus talking about? This, right? He says, look, I'm giving them this period, okay, to accept salvation for me, right? I'm giving this period. And, and here it begins, it says, from the going forward, look at verse 25, when would the prophecy begin? It says, now from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, again, because of the sake of time, and you can study, trust me, you can study this on your own. Okay. When did it begin? What year? 457 B.C. Okay. So for, for and this this is because um, there were different decrees that took place in Ezra chapter seven. You find it in Ezra chapter seven. Uh, there were different decrees by by Darius, by Artaxerxes. But now Artaxerxes, in his seventh year of his reign, he he allowed Ezra to go back to rebuild Jerusalem. Now remember, Ezra um, Artaxerxes was in reign from 464 B.C. When you subtract um, seven, seven years from that, you get 457, okay? 
So here he was in reign, and he let Ezra go and um, to rebuild Jerusalem. And it says on, uh, that this prophecy of restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem, it says to restore, to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince. Who is the Messiah? What does the Messiah mean? The anointed one, right? So here, basically, God is revealing that when, the begin, when you begin this prophecy, there's going to be a time where Christ is going to be anointed. And when was he anointed? In the baptism. Go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And if someone can read verse 37 and 38. Yes, sir. Go ahead. So here, this is talking about the baptism of Jesus, right? That John the Baptist was baptized him. And he said that he was anointed, right, at his baptism. Okay? Now, this was a big deal here. Now, if we, when we look at Luke chapter 3, turn me there real quick. We're going to turn to a few verses here, just so you can see the whole picture. In Luke chapter 3, we see the baptism of Jesus, right? In Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. Luke chapter 3 and verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was open, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came to heaven and said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So remember, we talked about Jesus here being baptized, and he was anointed here by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's see if this is true, because we're going to hear from the words of Jesus himself. All right. In Luke chapter four and verse 16, follow me here. And they came to when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he set up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath what? Anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set liberty to them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. So here Jesus himself, after the baptism, knowing that he was anointed, he goes in before the church and stand on the pulpit and says that this is me. Now, how did the people respond? The, the Bible says they were filled with wrath. <laughs> right? They're like, wait a minute. Hold on. They can't, that can't be him. Isn't that, isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't that Mary's son? Look how he looks. You know, remember Isaiah says that Jesus was not someone that you could desire. All these pictures that we have of Jesus, that's not how he looked. Okay? He wasn't attractive. That's what the Bible says. Right. You see these good looking pictures of Jesus. I'm like, man, that's, you know, this is not how he looked. That's why they looked at him. They're like, that can't be him. So here he said himself that he is the anointed one. OK, now the question is, is what year did this happen? Let's look at Luke chapter three again in verse one. Luke chapter three and verse one. Notice here, in Luke chapter three and verse one. It says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, why would Luke talk about Tiberius Caesar? Now, the question is, what's the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar? 
Tiberius Caesar was in reign. You will see that he was in reign in 14 AD, right? AD 14. But prior, before his father Augustus died, they both were co-ruler at 12 AD 12. When you add 15 years to that, you get how much? 27, which is exactly what Daniel said 483 years later, 27 AD, is when Jesus was baptized. Okay? So, and this is why. Remember when Jesus appeared before John? He says, you need to baptize me. What did John say? He said, no, man, you need to baptize me. He said, suffer it not, because time needs to be fulfilled. Because if Jesus is off, right, it throws this whole prophecy off. He had to get baptized at that time. And this is the re- Yes, sir. Yeah. Right. That's exactly right. And, and, and this is why when you even look at the, uh, when you look at the Talmud, which is the, the, the writings of, uh, of the scholar, the Jewish scholars, they said that if anyone read the book of Daniel, let their hand be burned. Why? It proves that the Messiah came, which is Jesus Christ. Okay? He said, let their hand be burned. The Talmud, the, you have the Talmud and the, the Talmud. Oh, let me write this out. And then you have the Mishnah. And those are like, uh, uh, no, uh-uh, no. They, those are like, uh, um, what do we call them? Uh, commentaries of the Torah. Right, mm-hmm. So they don't, they don't read the book of Daniel. Okay? So here, this is where Jesus was baptized, Right? Okay. Notice here again in the book of Daniel, we're trying to go through this. I'm sorry that I'm rushing. I just want to make sure you guys have something to eat in the cafeteria or wherever you're eating. Daniel chapter nine again. Okay. So here it says that when the the building and restoring of the of Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be. Um, seven weeks, three score, and two weeks, which is 69 weeks, which adds up to 483 years, which is exactly when Jesus was baptized, right? And notice here, this is fascinating, in verse 26, it says, and after the three score and two weeks, what happens to the Messiah? He's cut off, right? What does he mean by cut off? His ministry is that he's going to die, right? So that means after 27 AD, there's going to be a period where the Messiah is going to die. You follow what I'm saying, right? And the question is, is when? Because remember, we have 69 weeks here. Remember, we have a total of 70, okay? So that means there's one week that's left. And notice here in verse... Uh, 27, it says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for how long? One week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspread of abomination, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and the determination shall be poured upon the desolate. So here he said that he shall confirm a covenant for one week. Right? 
Now, how long is one week? Seven days, which is seven years, right? And so here you have seven years, but he says in the middle of the week, right? He shall cause a sacrifice. So that means in the middle of these seven, is the seven years, Christ is going to die. Okay? You follow so far? So what's half of seven? Three and a half. So that's why Christ ministered for three and a half years. And here... He died on Calvary in the spring of 31 A.D. And you still have three and a half years left. And then you have 34 A.D. We'll deal with that in a minute. So Christ. So you got to understand. Everything was methodical. Christ was dealing with time. When Christ said to Peter and the disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem. What did Peter do? He tried to stop him. But Christ said, look, I need to go because this is coming. You see what I'm saying? Christ is on time. Everything that he did was on time. And everything took place. If you look at when you, especially in the book of John, everything matched the ceremonies that took place in the earthly sanctuary. Okay, I don't have time to go through all, through all that, but I'm just saying that Christ was doing everything as he's supposed to because this is the time that he gave Daniel. Okay? And so here we see that Christ was baptized on time. He died on time for our sins. And remember, we still have three and a half years for the 34 um, AD. And so the question is, what took place? Now turn me to Acts chapter 7. Uh, Acts chapter 7. And let's look at Now remember here... Um, this is talking about the stoning of Stephen. And Acts chapter 6, Stephen is a, is a deacon, and he's ministering to the widows of the church. And Stephen was, was preaching the word. And remember, he was arrested by the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the church, and he was brought forth before them, right? And basically, he gives them a dissertation, a breakdown of all the things from the Old Testament, how it connects to Christ, okay? And as he's looking at them, as he's, Sharing that with them, he noticed that they were, uh, uh, by their facial expression, okay, that they weren't trying to listen to him, okay? So notice what he says to them um, in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. So could you just imagine that? He's just telling them, you stiff-necked people, <laughs> okay? And so... Here it says, um, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted and, and they have slain them which were showed before the coming of the just one of whom ye have been now the betrayers and the murderers who have received the law by dispensation of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he being filled of the Holy Ghost looked up steadfastly to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Notice here, it says that Jesus is standing. Right? Now, what kind of language is that? That's sanctuary language. Right? When there's a standing, the word standing means there's a judgment taking place. Something is about to happen. Right? And here, when you look at it, it says, um, he just saw him standing at the right hand of God, verse 56. And said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their heads and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin on their charge. And when he had said this, said this, he fell asleep. So we know that this is the stoning of Stephen, but something took place. Again, you, you look at this, the language here. We see Jesus standing at the right hand of, of God. And then you see also here that Stephen is using the same language as Jesus, right? When Jesus was on the cross, he said, lay not this sin on their charge. Isn't that what Jesus said to at the cross? Right. But something ended at the cross. What ended? The sacrificial system, the ceremonial laws ended. That's why when Christ was said it is finished. Remember, the, the, the veil was ripped from where? Top to bottom. Now, you know, human hands could not rip it because it was made out of goats hair. So and then it was ripped from the top. Right. So here's something ended. And here, this is after this experience. And remember, the person with here that, that actually was there was Saul, but he was ended up being who? Paul. And here, that's when the gospel went to the Gentiles. Okay? Notice here in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 and... Verse, someone read verse 46 and 47 for me, please. Go ahead, sir. Let me... Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. And since you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have sent you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation. All right. So here he says, look, the light has gone out from you and given to who? The Gentiles. They totally rejected the gospel. After the whole dissertation that Stephen was given before the Sanhedrin, he says, look, no more. I'm going to use the Gentile to proclaim the message all throughout the world. Okay. Notice here in Acts chapter 22. Turn me there real quick, Acts chapter 22, and listen to what Paul said about this experience here. Acts chapter 22, and if someone can read verse 20 and 21. Go ahead, brother. When everyone is there, Acts chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. So you see here, because of the stoning of Stephen, right? He says, look, I wish you to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Okay? So here, this remember, he said there was 70 weeks. You have 490 years to get your stuff, to, your act together. Okay? So they totally rejected the gospel. That does not mean that if a, a Jewish person today want to give their life to Jesus, praise the Lord. Okay? What we're talking about as a body, as a nation. Okay, and so now this is where we have the Gentiles. We have the, the gospel being proclaimed. Now, do you think the devil knows that? Yeah. So he says, look, I got to mess them up, too. <laughs> okay. And so and this is why. And Paul talks about this. Here's the person that was actually persecuting the church. He talks about this. Okay. Let's look at Acts 
Acts chapter 20. Look at, look, listen to what he says here. He says here in verse 28, he says, Take ye therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, or for which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. What's an overseer? Elder, right? An elder, is a, so he's a pastor, right? Now notice here, it says here, to feed the church of God, which is purchased with his own blood, right? Did Jesus purchase his own blood for the church? Yes. So notice here, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own self shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. He knew. He said that the wolves, remember Jesus talked about the wolf being the devil himself, is going to come into the church and men's going to start speaking perverse things and have disciples following after them. Okay? So again, the, this is what took place here in the 70 weeks, right? Now, this 70 weeks prophecy is part of something. Now remember here in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about when Gabriel came he said, look, I came to give you skill and understanding of that vision. Now, what vision was he talking about? That, the 2300 days, right? So this is part of the 2300 days, okay? And I'm going to tell you the reason why. Notice here, go to Dan chapter 8 again, actually at chapter 9. The word vision has two different meanings in Daniel 8 and 9. There's one called the Marae and Hazal. Now you probably say, well, like, what's the big deal? Okay? Now it's a huge thing, folks. Okay? When, when you see in verse 23 and he says, at the beginning of my, thy supplication, the commandment came forth, I come to show thee, for thou art great beloved, therefore understand in manner and consider the vision. That word vision is called the moray, which is talking about a specific vision. While the hazan is talking about the whole vision. Yes. Well, King James is, is actually... Yes, it says matter. No, it says consider the vision after it says matter. In verse, it says understand the matter and consider the vision. So in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel breaks down this whole vision, right? With the ram and the he-goat. Remember that? Right? The ram and the he-goat. And he goes and breaks down what the ram and the he-goat represent. Okay? Now, do you remember what the ram and the he-goat represent? What does the ram represent? What kingdom? All right. No. Meet of Persia. How about the goat? That's Greece, right? And so you have all this vision that's taking place here. Then he talks about the little horn and the little horn attacking. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So that's the whole vision. But then when he, when, when, when Gabriel is seeing this and he sees this little horn attacking and transgressing, uh, casting the truth to the ground, he asks a question. How long will they continue to do this? And the answer was verse 14. Until 2,300 days, the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. 
And that specific verse, that vision is the Moray. Now, as he went, Gabriel went to explain to Daniel, we're going to cover this in a little bit. Anyway, he went to explain to Daniel about the vision. He didn't come to talk about the ram and the ego. Because he already explained that. He didn't talk, but what he did not explain was Daniel 8.14. And he began with the 70-week prophecy. Now, why is that so important? Because Daniel 8 and 9 goes together. Okay? You have to emphasize that in your Bible study. They go together. Because what's happening in the Christian church, they are separating Daniel 8 and 9. And I'm going to tell you how. I was supposed to bring the sheet to you, but I forgot. They have taken this prophecy and, ex and extended it to the future. So I'm going to give you the false view. Remember, this is the false view of the 70 weeks. Understand this? False. I'm going to write false. Just so you don't forget. Okay? Now, in... In the Christian world that believes in the rapture, they believe that the prophecy begins with Nehemiah's prophecy in 445, I believe it is. Something like that. Okay? Then they have Christ dying at 33 AD. And then he goes to heaven. And then... Right here, this is where we have something called the gap theory, which is time stops. Okay? Time stops right here. So right now, we're in the period where time stops. Okay? Now, it will begin when... Jerusalem is rebuilt. This is why people like John Hagee and these guys, they're saying that we need to go, we, got, we, we need to encourage the, the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem. Because when they rebuild Jerusalem, right, this is when the church is raptured. Okay? And so they don't know when that's going to happen as far as the seven, year pro, uh, the, the seven years. Okay? So the church is raptured. Okay, then three and a half years later, the Antichrist is going to come. Right. And three and a half years later, Jesus comes. Okay. Yes, not, not Jews or the temple. Okay, so now check this out. During the time of the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformation accused the papacy of being the Antichrist. Martin Luther, Wesley, these guys, they all said it. And it became a huge thing, okay, uh, during that time. So during 1545, the, the papal church came with the Council of Trent to come together to see how they could counteract the Reformation, which is what they call the Counter-Reformation. So they, put, they picked two Jesuit priests to come out with two different doctrines to, to point people that the Antichrist is in the past or the Antichrist is in the future. And so one named uh, uh, Francisco Rivera, he came up with this view of the 70 weeks to point the Antichrist in the future. 
So then the people won't look at the, uh, the, the church as the Antichrist anymore. But there's a problem here. Okay? Not only that you point to Christ in the future, okay? Now we're in this a period where, we're, where time has stopped. But let me ask you this question. What happens to the 2300 days with this theory? It doesn't exist. So let me ask you a question. What happens to the judgment? Doesn't exist. So what happens to your sins? You still continue to sit until Jesus comes. You see what the devil is doing? He's making sure that people are not paying attention that we are in the judgment. So he's getting people caught up in this diff these different theories, and it's coming from the papacy. And it's papacy just sitting back relaxing while we're debating among our amongst ourselves. And, and people are saying, oh, no, this is true. But they don't understand that the church, the papal church came up with this. Just so it removes the Day of Atonement. Oh, man, I got to move. Okay. You, yes, sir. Just add one more thing. Uh-huh. Middle of that seven year period down at the bottom. Yes, sir. Uh, they believe that's when the altar is going to go up. Mm -hmm. gonna, or that's actually the altar goes up at the beginning of the seven, at the somewhere at the three and a half. That's when the abomination that stops the altar, and then the last three and a half years tribulation. Oh, so right. All about the altar. And and also that this is when the hundred forty four thousand is going to come about with, but it was just supposed to be the literal Jews, right? But we have to understand, right? That those who accept Christ is of Israel. You see what I'm saying? And so this is, this is remember, this is false. Okay? False. Just so, you know, you don't say that Pastor Daniel is teaching false theology. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yes, ma'am. View of this? No, mm -mm. there's no. Now this here, there, there, Nehemiah did rebuild the temple, for sure. But there's again, this is why they have question marks here because they don't know when. They're just waiting for the temple to be rebuilt, so they don't know when. They're just waiting, so they have their Israel flags in their churches and and just you know, pumping them up to do it. So who's using this? Um, you have a lot of Christian churches uh, that are using this today, like the Baptists, and they believe in that. And you have others, too, that are very prominent. That's in that. I actually came across this whole theory. I didn't know that this was from the Jesuits. I didn't know it was anybody else's theory. Sure. This guy at a homeschool convention who, uh, if any of you may have heard of homology of science, the man that wrote that theory, for some reason he went into theology of this, and he was talking to the young people at this homeschool convention. I happened to be there with my two oldest and thankfully, my daughter was able to actually go up afterwards and correct all of his theology. Oh, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yes, sir. I think that's interesting too because this, has, this idea of Christ coming and being dependent on that has spilled into politics as well. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yes, right. For sure. For sure. For sure. Yes, sir. In great controversy. Ellen White described what the abomination was uh -huh. that made desolate. Mm -hmm. And that was when the military came around. That's right. And poor, poor, and posed the standard. For sure. That's right. And so, and this is, again, this is the thing. This is, I'm telling you, the Bible is just so, it's so amazing. You wonder why they gave two different meanings of the word vision. 
Because God knew that people were going to disconnect Daniel 8 and 9. And specifically, when you read the Hebrew, when Daniel, when Gabriel comes back, he says, look, I came to give you skill and understanding of that vision. Talking about the 2300 days, which is the mare. That's why you can't disconnect the two. So this is why when you ask them, what do you do with the 2300 days? They don't know. Because they've been focused on this here, the false theory. Because that's going to extend to the future. Okay? Now, we have 10 minutes. I'm going to do something real quick here. Did you guys get this, thing, this down? Yeah, uh, you want me to get out the way? Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's, she's like this. <laughs> get out the way. <laughs> all right. So now you got all this down. Now watch this here. So again, we talked about the 2,300 days the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. Now it's just talking about the earthly sanctuary. Okay. So you have the 2,000... 300 days, which is what? Years, okay? So again, we talked about the 70 week that was in, that's in here, which is the 490 years. All right, so you have this so far, right? Now, that means, it says, he said this, until 2,300 days, the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. Now, what did the cleansing have the sanctuary um, dealt with in the earthly sanctuary. What was that dealing with? The Day of Atonement, right? And the Day of Atonement, remember, the high priest would go in the most holy place where? Once a year, right? We know that Christ is our high priest, okay? So the thing is, in this, in this here, we see that we have the Antichrist power, okay? I want you to follow with me here. We have the Antichrist power which is the 1,260 years, right? From 538 to 1798, which you have the Dark Ages, okay? Now, remember, when Christ left, when Christ went to heaven, did he, what did he start doing? His high priestly ministry, right? Now, I'm going to erase this up here. You guys have all this, right? Now, let's just... Let's just make believe here that we have a sanctuary in heaven. Okay? Now, remember, there's no auto court in heaven. The auto court was here on earth. Okay? So you have the table of showbread. You got the candlesticks. Remember in Revelation chapter 1, it said Jesus is walking in the midst of the seven candlesticks, right? Remember um, Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, it talks about the altar of incense. Okay? And remember, it talks about in Revelation chapter 4 that the, the, the throne of God was right across from the seven candlesticks. Because remember, the table of showbread also represents the throne of God, right? And then you have God's presence, okay, with the cherubims. You see that also in Revelation chapter 4, all right? So now let me ask you a question. Since Jesus is high priest, right, what were the people supposed to be doing? Praying, confessing their sins, keeping their eyes on who? Jesus. So here, let's just say God's people, okay, supposed to keep their eyes in the heavenly sanctuary, right? So again, Satan wanted to distort that, okay? Now, watch this. Go to Dan chapter 8 real quick. Like I said, you can study your own time. We talk about the ram and the he-goat, right? 
Remember the ram and the he goat? Now, remember, what animals did, they, did, did Daniel use in Daniel chapter 7? He used all these different beasts, right? But here, why he, did he use a ram and a he goat here in Daniel chapter 8? What was the ram and the he goat used for in the, in the Old Testament? Sacrifice, specifically during the Day of Atonement. So that means the context of Daniel chapter 8 is the sanctuary. Okay? Because he specifically, if you look at Leviticus chapter 16, the beginning chapter, he used, the, in the David told me they used a ram and a, and a goat. Okay? Now, watch this here. So, notice here, is start, starting from verse um, 9, it says, And out of one of them, talking about the four horns, remember the, the horn was broken to four? It said, out of one of them, not talking about the horns, but the winds, it says, the little horn which waxed the sea degree towards the south, towards the east, towards the pleasant land, and it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and cast down some of the hosts and the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Now, I want you to understand that the host of heaven is talking about God's people. Okay? And the stars of, the stars of, of heaven is talking about God's people. Because when you look at the interpretation of this, when Gabriel is given the interpretation, he was talking about God's people. Did Rome attack God's people? Yes, they did. In 70 AD. I'm going to put 70 right here. Okay? 70 AD, that's where you had the destruction of Jerusalem. Right? So they were attacking God's people. Now notice. This is where you see that he was attacking um, horizontally. Now watch here, verse 11. And he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And the host was given unto them, unto him against the daily, by, by reason of transgression, and cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Now, he said that the little horn magnifies himself to the prince of the host. Who's the prince of the host? Christ. Where's Christ now? In heaven, right? And he says the daily was taken away. Now, people have different um, interpretations of daily, but this is what makes sense to me. The, the word daily means continual, right? It means continual in, in the Hebrew. And when you look at the word daily in the Old Testament sanctuary, the daily services took place in the earthly, in the outer court, in the holy place services. Remember what Christ started to do after his um, resurrection. He started to work in the holy place. Right. So here it says that the, the little horn took away the daily. Right. And it, and it cast truth to the ground and it prospered. That means that here Christ was ministering in the holy place in the um, heavenly sanctuary. But the devil used the papacy to come up with different doctrine to keep people's eyes away from Christ ministering into the whole, in the holy place. That's why he cast the truth to the ground and it prospered. What did he come up with? The, the uh, um, Eucharist, right? Indulgences, right? The praying to saints, right? Changes the Sabbath to, uh, to Sunday, right? All these things, and they made it a law that you could not have a Bible in your home. You were considered a heretic and you would be burned at the stakes or imprisoned or tortured. All this took place here, and that kept the eyes of the people away from Christ. So the devil says, man, I got to come up with this plan. 
So here, God says, look, I'm going to come up with my plan. Right? To counteract this. And remember, that's why we started off in the beginning of our, our study, that there was going to be a judgment that's going to take place after the papacy. Remember, we talked about that. Notice. It's in verse 13. Then I heard one saint speaking and another saint said unto the certain saint which spake, how long will be the vision considered the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to be both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden under, underfoot? And we know this to be these two holy people. One, I believe, is Michael the Archangel, which is Jesus, and Gabriel. And Gabriel is asking the question, how long are they going to continue to do this? How long are the papacy is going to continue to cast truth to the ground? Because even from here, you have people that came out, which is called Protestants. But even with Protestants, I will tell you how the Catholic Church are. In one of their books called uh, Faith, Faith, of Our, no, Faith of Millions by Reverend O'Brien. He's a Catholic priest from Notre Dame. He said to himself, he says, look, Protestants cracks me up because we before the, um, the change... When they say sola scriptura, they don't realize that when we changed the Sabbath, that we changed it way before Protestantism was born. By them keeping Sunday, he says, they realize they don't realize that we are the mother church. It's like a boy when he leaves home, he still has a picture of his mother in his pocket. So even though they broke away, they still was connected. And here, Gabriel's like, what are we going to do about this, Lord? He says, I have a solution. He says, after 1798, there's going to be a judgment that's going to take place in 1844. Now, what happened in 1844? All right. So Christ went to the most holy place. But, the, but I said, you think he's going to leave it there? <laughs> he's not just going to leave it there. He says, look, I'm going to have a people that's going to come together, that's going to study the word of God, and they're going to restore truth to this rightful place. And this is why I believe this is the Seventh-day Adventist movement. He has called us together to say, look, let's come together to counteract this. Because when, you, when you're teaching false theology about God, you're, you are distorting his character. So he says, look, I'm going to have a people that's going to vindicate God's character. That's us. Notice Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. I'm going to end in a minute, brother. I'm coming. <laughs> I'm coming. Revelation chapter 14. Look at verse 6 here. And it says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? Everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred tongue and people, say with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his what? Judgment is come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. So here he says, look, we have this everlasting gospel. And in the context of this gospel, we have a judgment. The judgment is in the context of this gospel. And here he says, look, the judgment is here. We need to warn every nation, kindred, tongue, and people that the papacy is lying. And we're not doing it. We're not preaching the three angels' messages. And we say, oh, well, you know, you know this is judgment. You know, we don't want to put, tell people about that. Let me tell you something. And I'm going to share this with you here. 
years when I lived in New York, right? <laughs> um, my ex-girl, remember Crystal, <laughs> right? She's a cop, okay? We used to go to church together, by the way. <laughs> so, um, and she, because she's a cop, and my cousin is a cop, we get special privileges, okay? So we, get, we have a badge, okay? So when we get pulled over, okay, it's, it's called courtesy, that if we get stopped, we just show them the badge and they let us go. You understand what I'm saying? Boy, did I use that to my advantage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I had, you know, I used to drive Chris. No. no, I'm going to tell you the story. I'm going to tell you the story. So, you know, I used to drive my ex-girl's car. There was one time she had no license plate, no registration, nothing. Cop pulled me over, showed him this. He said, go ahead. That's how it was. Right? And, you know, and prior to that, I used to get points on my license for doing crazy stuff, speeding, whatever. Okay? So I was just taking advantage. I, I would just skip red lights, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, just to do it. Okay? So then when I moved to Virginia, all right, Virginia's a whole different ball game. <laughs> okay? I tried showing this. That didn't work, man. <laughs> it didn't work. All right? And I got into an accident. Okay? And then the, the, the police officer uh, gave me a ticket, and I had to appear before court. Man, I was so fearful. You know, I had to appear before court. I didn't know. I, I was watching these guys appear for the judge, and the judge would be like, 30 days, 30 days, 30 days. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. You know? And then when I appear before the judge, he says, look, pay a fine. Now, but because I did this, right, it caught up to me because I lost my license. Right. My license was suspended for three months and I was a truck driver living in the country in Virginia. Now, there's no bus. There's no, you know, trains where you go to work. (laughs) So I was stuck in the country, can't drive. I have to call people to take me to the store, lost my license, lost my job. And I'm like, all because I was taking advantage. You see what I'm saying? The thing is. Let me tell you something about the judgment. It's a good thing because what, what that did was change my behavior. I'm like, I'm not going to break the law. Ever since then, I am faithful because I do not want to appear before the court. You, know, you get what I'm saying? But I'm faithful. Because why? Because I know what it's, you know, I, I need to be obedient to the law, period. We have to obey the civil laws. But here, when you look at the judgment that's taking place, God is saying, look, there's a sense of urgency. And there are people in the world that is dying in Christless graves. And we are called to restore truth to his rightful place. This is why we're called. We have to restore it. And now we're not preaching this. We need to get back into preaching our message. Amen. I wish I had more time, you know, but it's lunchtime. So why don't we have a word of prayer together? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the message, the three angels' message, Lord, that we need to proclaim all throughout this world. Father, you have said in your word in Revelation 18 that you have people that are in Babylon, Father, that you are calling out to, for them to come out of Babylon. 
But Father, that not only can happen if we are in this work, if we are evangelizing and sharing with others the truth in your word. Father, we know that the devil is busy trying to distort the truth. But our Father, I'm just thankful, Lord, that you have put truth to its rightful place. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to study your word. Help us to share with others about uh, what's taking place right now in the heavenly sanctuary where Christ is interceding on our behalf. Father, help us to be ready. We ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.